This is the holy and inspired word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, that, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, as we move to consider the inspiration of your scriptures this evening, we're reminded of uh, the words that we just sang, that Ephraim forgot forgot their words and thus forsook, forsook you. And they were instructed to teach it to their children. And so now we come before you, the, the King of glory, to interpret your word, to, to consider your word, to teach it to the children, to pass it on, to remember it, to call it to mind. And it is so important for us. And so we ask now that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that we would be encouraged uh, by your grace as it's made known to us in Jesus Christ, uh, the word made flesh. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn now to your bulletin, we're going to read Article 3 of the Belgic Confession together. Article 3. Uh, What do we believe concerning the written word of God? We confess that this word of God was not sent or delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says, afterwards our God, because of the special care he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. We have three points for this evening that we're going to move through. The first is the word of God, just looking briefly at the doctrine of inspiration itself. The second is dealing with how the Belgic attributes scriptures dealing with this. So we're going to be looking at various passages in scripture to to prove what we're arguing for the doctrine of inspiration. And then we're going to move to discuss its relevance for us, uh, as the confession says, the special care that God has for us. So first, this word of God. So scripture is not the product of man alone or of God alone, but it is authored by both being a key word organically written by men and inspired by God. Now, when we say that key word organic, that's the word we're really using to describe what inspiration is, the process as it's transmitted from God to us. When we say organic, we don't mean that it's 50-50, that, that it's half man and half God that's writing uh, the word of God, the scriptures, but we believe that it is 100% the product of man and 100% the product of God. Now, in order to describe what organic means, we have to say what it is not, first of all. It, it, it is not, 
It is not mechanical. God does not, in the process of inspiration, override human will and override human agency or take control or possess the human writers uh, in order to record and write what's written in scriptures. It's also not speech to text. God wasn't sitting there telling them each and every word that was to be written. Now, one of the sure proofs that we have of this is, for example, the visions and the dreams that the prophets saw and, and bore witness to which still required interpretation, which still required recording. That tells us that inspiration cannot be what some would argue for mechanical. This kind of overriding or speech-to-text, whereby God takes control or possesses the human writers, as it were. They become as robots. They searched, as 1 Peter says, they searched and they inquired carefully, they wanted to know what they had seen and what, it, what, what, they, what they had seen meant. And they discussed it. And they brought it to bear upon the people in their own words and in their own thoughts. But to leave it here leaves it skewed towards maybe a human authorship to the exclusion of God. How can the words of fallen men be properly considered the word of God if God is left out of it? If it's just their thoughts, if it's just their words? Scripture says clearly clearly that the word of God, that prophecy, that scripture is breathed out by God. So how can what they write be considered the word of God, the inspired word of God? Because God sanctifies the natural gifts, personalities, histories, language, and cultural inheritance of the biblical writers. He does this so that the words, the ideas, and the intentions are properly speaking on one end of the spectrum their own. It's not as if they weren't thinking and and feeling or ruminating on the very words that they wrote. If it's not God's possession of them so that they are not in control of themselves, if it's not God overriding their will, then they're still thinking and feeling and volitional beings who are interacting with the things that God is giving to them, the knowledge that God is giving to, to them, or the visions that God is giving to them. Now, sinful men can interpret what they received from God and record what God breathed out to them authoritatively because God has sanctified them for this purpose all their lives long. As as they wrote and as they spoke on the things that they were given insight into, it was things that they actually thought or felt, especially in response to the knowledge given to them by God. And so what we find in Scripture is not inhumane, though it, is, though it does have superhuman origin, but it is the words of men to mankind. Michael Horton comments on this, something that I think is helpful. Sanctification in this regard is not the destruction or alteration of human nature, But God's act of claiming, of redeeming, of renewing, and of commissioning human nature for himself. The divine word always remains in and through human words, not just alongside them or overwhelming them. So in this way, God is operating organically through the authors. He's sanctifying their natural gifts, their experiences in life, their knowledge, their understanding, in order that they can write the word of God without error as authoritative for commanding all that we need for life and righteousness. 
Now this brings a problem. How can they write on that which is secret and mysterious and not revealed by general revelation, right? This is why we need divine authority, divine revelation. General revelation is insufficient for this. Genius, insight, understanding on its own, human human limited capacities cannot ascertain the redemptive work of God in Christ Jesus on its own. So this requires that God, God come down, that he actually breathe out or inspire both the ideas as well as the words themselves. Now this idea of God's inspiration of the idea and the word is something that we call verbal plenary inspiration. It means that it's not merely man's words and God's ideas that he's given them access to, but the words themselves are God's words. So they would not know these things if it were not from God and if God had not given them the words and the ideas themselves. God, as it were, takes them up, sometimes literally and sometimes metaphorically, into his heavenly courtroom and gives them insight, gives them vision into things that cannot be known by what we see and what we observe and what we think. The words and ideas in Scripture then would not have been thought or felt by the authors if God, if God the Spirit had not acted upon them in the act of inspiration. So this, is, this gets at both aspects then. These human authors were genuinely, as men, interacting with what God had spoken to them, what God had revealed to them, the, the heavenly vision of the heavenly court that He had given to them. Finally, in covering the doctrine of inspiration, so we've, so we've covered what's called verbal plenary inspiration, that the words as well as the ideas, that it's organic, that God sanctifies their natural gifts. We come to perhaps what I think is the most important part of, of our doctrine of inspiration. It is a Trinitarian act. It's a Trinitarian act like what we witness at creation. The Father speaks. The Father speaks the Son. The Father speaks the Son through the perfecting agency of the Holy Spirit. The Father perfect, speaks the Son through the perfecting agency of the Holy Spirit. So scriptures then, as we saw this morning, are all about Jesus. And in this way, they're all about how men might be saved. So divine speech or the scriptures come from God through the creaturely agency as it is made fruitful through the operation of the Spirit and it is all about Jesus Christ. It is a Trinitarian act. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operating in such a way that we might have a word that is authoritative. Now, we're not just making this doctrine up. We're not just saying this so that we can have an authoritative word. We're not just saying this so that we can have uh, explain the origin of Scripture. The Scriptures themselves teach and prove the doctrine of inspiration. As the Confession notes, as Peter says, and as God wrote with his own hand. The biblical writers, as First Peter chapter two, Second Peter chapter one, verses twenty to twenty-one says, were moved to say certain things because God acted upon them by His external communication. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no pro- for no in- for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God, by the Spirit, was operating according to 1 Peter within them to give and to make his word fruitful in their own minds and in their own hearts. So we noted already, man by nature does not have access to, the, to these words or these ideas. It doesn't come from his own interpretation. These are the secret things of God that cannot be, that cannot be gained, that cannot be observed by general revelation. And so this carrying along by the Spirit supports the point that they were not only sanctified for this purpose, but that they were enabled through the Spirit as, uh, as, as in this organic process. It wasn't mechanical. It wasn't possession. They didn't believe themselves either to be possessed. They believed themselves to be enabled by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They also believed that the, the very ideas and the words that they were speaking were given to them by God. They were carried along. No prophecy is produced by the will of men, but men spoke as, from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. They were both then commissioned to write the vision and make it plain on tablets, as Habakkuk 2 verse 2 says. So they knew that they were writing Scripture, and they understood that what they wrote was the very word of the Lord. This second point, that they understood what they wrote to be the word of the Lord, is made plain from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, verse two, three to 2. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. Numbers are not my strong suit this evening. There Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord through uh, of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So here Peter's saying, even though these words were spoken by men, they can properly be called God's own word. Uh, they can be properly called the words of the Lord and Savior. And Peter is equating the words of the prophets of old with the words that the apostles now teach concerning the commandments of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the New Testament scriptures spoken by the apostles, which they've borne witness to concerning Jesus Christ, is equal to the Old Testament prophecy and scriptures, and both of them are correlated to the commandments of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His very own words. We also see this reality indicated from Exodus chapter 4, verses 12 and 15 to 16, that, they, that these words we find in scripture are God's very own words. There, God comes to Moses, this is when he's commissioning Moses, and he says, go, and I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what to speak. Now Moses complains, he, he's, he, you know, he, he's like, ah, I, I can't really do it, I don't want to do it, I, I, I don't know how to speak publicly. So God then says this to him, after raising up Aaron, you shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, 
and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So here the paradigm is that Moses is as God to Aaron, so the words that Aaron speaks are Moses' words and are therefore, proverbially speaking, within the paradigm that he set up, God's words. So if we are then to apply that same paradigm to the relationship that God has with Moses, the very words that God gives to Moses are God's words, passed down to Aaron to be spoken by the authority of Moses, who is God to Aaron. These are God's own words. It also says later in Exodus, after Moses has come down from the mountain, that Moses wrote down the words of the Lord, which he then refers to later as, in Deuteronomy, written by the very finger of God. So scripture isn't unclear. Even though Moses is speaking, even though Moses is writing these things down, it is considered the very word of the Lord God Almighty. Authoritative, binding, applicable, suitable for human life, for righteousness, for knowing Christ. It is considered inspired. It is considered organic. And the apostles, as well as the Old Testament writers, understood this to be the case. Now, what about this Trinitarian aspect? Well, God's Trinitarian creative acts in Genesis mirror the Trinitarian act in the inspiration of the Scriptures. We're going to get a little bit technical here. Um, There's something that I want to call a direct and immediate divine word where God the Father's speech directly brings something out of nothing very important category for us, and we witness this in Genesis when it says, let there be, and there was. God's word is directly bringing something out of nothing, directly affecting that thing. This is immediate divine word, direct word. But there there is also an indirect, immediate word, where the spirit, as it were, broods over the waters of chaos in creation and makes the creative word fruitful and works within creation, that that created thing might fulfill its intended purpose. We witness this in the other language that Scripture uses when when it speaks of and describes God's creative acts. Instead of let there be, which is direct speech, direct word, there is also let the earth sprout. And it was so. There is a difference there. There, God is calling creation itself to do what it was created to do. And this is what we would call an immediate or indirect Trinitarian act and Trinitarian word. So the inspirations of Scripture is an indirect and immediate act of God, particularly the Spirit, where He is calling and enabling men, uh, sinful men to, as it were, sprout a divine word, in order that it might be so. The Spirit is indirectly calling men to sprout, an indi- uh, to sprout a divine word, and it is so. Now we see how in this paradigm, it's all about Jesus. If God's work in creation is Trinitarian, and Jesus is the center, it's also the case in Scripture. 
He is the word that was spoken at creation, just as he is the word spoken by the Father uh, in the scriptures and made fruitful by the Spirit in the word that we have, that, that we read each and every Sunday. So scripture is organically produced by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit through the free and full will of men who are given access to and spoken to by God in his self-disclosure, in his self-revelation. And what they wrote were God's very own words given to man who spoke from their hearts, words that were made God's authoritative and error-free word by the operation of the Spirit. And at the very center of that word, is the Father's speech about the Son made efficacious, made authoritative, made fruitful by the operation of that Spirit. Now, from the special care that God has for us, what's the significance of this all for us today? Why is the doctrine of inspiration worthy of our consideration? Why is it even something that's comforting to us? God freely gives an authoritative word without which we cannot be saved. General revelation is insufficient. You can't make this up. You can't get it by your own interpretation, as Peter says. It's not produced by the will of men. It requires the work of God. And this is especially relevant when we think about the world that we live in. We live in a world of uncertainty, epistemological uncertainty. Can we really know anything? Is there objective truth? In the midst of this world, in the midst of not even just the outside world that doubts what they believe, when we look at the reality of our own hearts, we see how deceptive we are with ourselves. In the midst of all of this, we can be confident in this word. It's not made up. It's not, it's not pulled out of thin air. We have something authoritative, something that's worthy of our trust. So reason, experience, genius, science, there's error in all of it. We're prone to fail with all of it. And clearly, it's not enough. Romans 1 tells us that. Article 2 of the Belgic Confession tells us that. The general revelation is insufficient to know God savingly. And the reality is, as rational thinking beings, we want answers. We want answers. People out in the world want answers that they can't find. And at the same time that they want answers that they, they, they can't seem to find a solid answer to, they seem to deny the reality that there is an objective truth. There is an objective word. There is an authoritative word. The Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not really surprising that our culture has abandoned objective, authoritative truth. There is only one thing that qualifies for it. The Word of God. This is the only thing that tells me anything that I can be confident of with absolute certainty that Jesus, the Son of God, died for my sins and that I'm a sinner who needs His grace. So we, we need something from outside. I think of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. 
A generation comes, a generation goes, the sun rises, the sun goes down, rivers go round and round and round and round. All of earth is filled with this just kind of circular futility. And the answer in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 is that we need something from outside of us. The incarnation of the sun to come and bring new creation. To come and end this, this endless cycle. So this tells us also that we don't just need the incarnate... <laughs> this is actually a play. We don't just need the incarnation of the Son. We need the incarnational Word. And He is the Word that became flesh. We need something to rule over our lives and serve as the objective standard and truth worthy of our hearty faith. And God freely gives us an answer and it's an authoritative one that we can believe because it comes from Him. And it's grace. He does this from His special redemptive love for us sworn in the covenant of redemption before the foundations of the world. Now, even though God is infinitely removed from us, he gives us his word suitable to our understanding, and it's all about how men can be saved. That's marvelous. We don't even have the light to interpret general revelation or our own nature rightly, but the God who is infinite in his knowledge and in his being, far above our apprehension, condescends to make himself known to us in baby talk. He gives us a word about salvation that we can actually understand. It's suited to our capacity. And he does this by writing through sinful men. He accommodates to our needs when he gives us his word. So that we can understand what it is that is ours in Christ Jesus and what that word means. Finally, because it is inspired by God and written by men, it is a message from sinners Two sinners. I think sometimes a word from a friend who has suffered or has gone through something that you're suffering presently, who understands your anguish, is the most encouraging word of all. I understand what you're going through. I've been there. Scripture is written by men like who Isaiah, when they witnessed God's glory, understood their unworthiness and sin. Paul Tripp likes to say, no one knows grace like the one who knows they need it the most. Isaiah knew grace because he saw plainly as he stood in the heavenly court of God just how unworthy he was to stand there. The authors of the scripture knew just how good God's word was because they understood just how sinful we are. So scripture is an endearing letter not just for salvation but for an encouragement for our encouragement and emotional well-being in the faith. The same men who wrote the scriptures were the same men who were comforted by it. The same men who wrote the scriptures were the same ones that could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who could say, I have not want, my needs are fully supplied. So the word of God is something that we should be thankful for something that we can be confident in, and something that should lead us to recognize God's grace, His love, 
his kindness and his tenderness to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the psalmist proclaims, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So we ask now, as we have considered the authority of your word and its origin as being inspired, that you would hide that word, that you would hide Christ in our heart, that we might not sin against you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.